Second, welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane. I am your host, and I want to thank you for joining me here. Um, uh, I do have to say that you were always kind of in a fun drive mode, so um, that uh, that continues today. <laughs> so um, let me ask that you, if you're listening to the program, and if you enjoy the program, or even if the program just makes you think, maybe you you don't agree with some or much or even even any of what I what the perspective that I offer but but if it makes you think and you um appreciate the diversity and and hearing a voice that you may not necessarily agree with then I ask that you go to the phone line and support WBAI in New York City so I ask that you go to uh 212-209-2950 and make a donation of any size and if you do it in the name of this program I would greatly appreciate it. You can also go online to give2wbai.org um, and uh, follow the prompts to, to make a donation. So, um, you know, I always begin the program with kind of laying it out there. We are listener-supported radio. We, we only exist because of you, and we can only continue to exist because of you. So uh, support the station, and uh, look, if you do it in the name of the show or you make a donation during this show, then uh, it sends a message that uh, to management, to, to to the powers that be, that uh, that this is a program that certainly makes you think a little bit. And I'm gonna probably offer a bit of a perspective today that uh, that can uh, be something maybe you would expect it from me, but you wouldn't necessarily expect it uh, in general. I don't know how WBAI is handling the um, the Ukraine invasion. I mean. I understand that WBAI is is a very diverse station, so there may be diverse and diverging points of view on this on this whole thing. But I'm going to be clear: I absolutely condemn imperial imperial powers invading, occupying, and claiming uh, the territories of other people. Um, why? <laughs> well, it sounds vaguely familiar to me. Uh, but I also think that when it happens. It has to be reversed. There has to be restoration. You know, you, I've talked about this even as we've talked about things like reconciliation or reparations. No, there has to be restoration. And so even as Russia continues to, uh, to mount its aggression against Ukraine, uh, thumbing its nose at, the, you know, at, at NATO powers and, frankly, the rest of the world, um, I, hope, I hope Russia pays a dear price for it. I hope it, I, I hope it does hurt them economically. Clearly, nobody's going to intervene. Nobody's going to uh, lift a finger to to confront physically, militarily, the so uh, you know the Russia. Why? Because they've got nuclear weapons. I mean, that was the whole thing, right? That's what nuclear weapons were supposed to be this deterrent um, that would prevent an attack. Well, even when you make an attack, it is being wielded as a as a weapon to prevent an attack. So, you know that's 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 why NATO would would never really. Um, uh, offer military assistance to, to not only Ukraine, but any of those former Soviet bloc countries that, that, that Russia is trying to rebuild its, uh, you know, its empire with. So, yeah, I have, I have a big problem with what's happening there. You know, and, and I, frankly, I have a big problem with, with some of the responses. I mean, the immediate thing, you know, that everybody says, well, how's it going to affect me? And so then you hear the United States saying, well, fuel prices may go up and you may take a, take a hit at the pump. Well, it's a funny thing. Remember all that hydrofracking they did? Remember all of that, you know, 
contaminating more lands for natural gas and for uh, and for, for for you know getting some of that oil out of that you know Balkan crude oil, all of that, all of that, those pipelines that were supposed to help you know with the with tar sands oil out of Canada, all of this energy independence. So when Russia, which isn't a big imp- exporter of you know, it, it may be an exporter to, to Europe, but in the, in the overall global economic scheme, the fact that their conflict and, and their attack on, on Ukraine should drive oil prices up to $100 a barrel. Look, we have people <laughs> right close by that are just dancing in the streets uh, with, with oil going up to $100 a barrel, over $100 a barrel. All of those U.S. Uh, drillers and suppliers and uh, all those people in the, those extractive industries are, look, they're sitting real pretty. And you know who else is sitting real pretty? All those corporate conglomerates of, uh, uh, in, the, in the agribusiness, not the small farmer. I'm not talking about you know, your farmer down the street. But all those mega farms are also saying, hey, wheat prices are going to go up too. Ukraine was a big wheat supplier, so Russia was a big uh, you know, wheat producer. So, so all of these multinational corporations that, have, uh, that really thrive when there's conflict, yeah, they're thriving now too. And you, you the consumer, you're, oh, you're all going to pay. But you're not all going to pay because of Russia. You're going to pay because of the greed uh, associated with the, with the companies that you patronize every freaking day. So that's, that's the truth of the matter. Now, again, I don't know how the rest of this station, uh, I've listened to some of the media and, and how much they've tried to, you know, bend the truth a little bit. And, you know, they shied away from calling it an attack, even when, uh, or an invasion, even though it was an invasion. They've, they've shied away from, from all of the, this other language. And, you know, and there may be somewhat of a reason for that because it, it, it is still, and look, the United States has no shame in condemning a country for doing what it not only has done, but continues to do. I mean, listening to, to the United States um, attack China, and I'm not saying that it's not justified over their treatment of Uyghurs. I mean, I listened to a whole story. I think I talked about it in the last program. It was a whole story on NPR about the Uyghurs you know, being having their children taken away and sent into these boarding schools where they were punished for speaking their language. Sound familiar? But you know, you listen to to the United States, you know, putting up their you know their 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 false indignation when a country today does the same thing that the United States did for for a hundred years, not just a decade. So when when the, when Russia goes in and annexes Crimea, and of course it was illegal, because that's what imperial powers do. But you didn't hear anybody saying anything about Hawaii, the Kingdom of Hawaii, that was illegally annexed. And you know what? There's a solution to it: give the freaking place back. And it's, and nobody's suggesting that that you know every non-Hawaiian person has to has to leave. But know that you're that you it, that it's not your land. It's not your it's it's not your territory. It's not your country. It's not your nation. Look, the international community all, community all recognized the recognized the Kingdom of Hawaii. They had they had embassies all over the world, and everybody shut their mouths and remained quiet when the United States invaded the country, 
in a somewhat bloodless coup, took it over, claimed it was an, it was annexed when it wasn't, didn't, didn't even follow their own laws. And it, it's not like, in Russia, Putin is the law. But the United States actually had to break its law to annex the Kingdom of Hawaii. They actually had to break their own law. And they did it willingly. And ultimately, you know, it, it, was, it was a part of that whole uh, chapter of American imperialism that would go into the Spanish-American War and the Philippines and Cuba and South America and all these. I mean, this is what imperial powers do. And the United States still does it. And of course, I'm talking about Hawaii, but I'm not, I mean, Hawaii is one of the final chapters of indigenous people being, uh, having this done to them in, in this large way. But leading up to Hawaii, look, part of the reason there wasn't more resistance from the Hawaiian people, they saw the massacres at Wounded Knee. It was just a few years before that. That's the history of the United States. So, look, I'm all for international condemnation against what Russia is doing to the Ukraine. But you know what? Let's not stop there. Let's, I mean, the crazy part is, there was this period of time where, you know, there, there was, you know, through the United Nations, there, there was a whole effort tied to decolonization. And independent nations were born out of Africa and, and you know, some Asian countries and South America. But nobody looked at, the, at, at the, the Hawaiian kingdom. Nobody looked at, at native territories. We were still being subjugated. We were still having our lands stolen. You know, prior to the show, Reggie was talking about, yeah, there's a lot of talk about, you know, perhaps you, you, Ukraine and Russia entering into treaties. Yeah, we know a little bit about some, something about treaties. We, we know a little something about those. And when you are the imperial power, you keep as your prerogative the right to abrogate a treaty at will. Whenever, whenever it suits your national interest. That's what the United States does. Every treaty the United States ever entered into with Native people was broken. And of course, then there were some that are made up, like the annexation treaty with Hawaii. There was no annexation treaty with Hawaii. I mean, they got statues built with President McKinley holding a, a scroll of paper called the annexation treaty. And it, it didn't exist, never happened. It's, it's a lie. So look, I am not in any way, shape, or form suggesting that because of the United States behavior that, that Russia is somehow justified in Crimea or uh, you know, Donetsk or, or any other parts of, of, of Ukraine. No, I, 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 I absolutely condemn what Russia is doing. But, but you know what? If the United States is going to condemn it, then maybe they ought to turn that mirror a little bit and, and you know, do a little bit of self-check on what their history is and do something about it. Look, I've, I've talked about residential schools. For 100 years, children were ripped from their homes, from their communities, from their families, sent to these boarding schools where they were forced to pray on their knees, abandoned their culture, had their, hairs, their hair chopped off, had their clothes ripped off, put in these little you know, uniforms. They were literally, there was an attempt to whiten them. Kill the Indian, save the man. For a hundred years. And 
And my issue that isn't talked about enough as it relates to that is that, yes, there were horrendous things. There were heinous crimes committed against children. But what gets missed in much of that conversation is the overall toll that we as peoples, you know, 500, you know, 1,000 distinct peoples in the United States and Canada, what was done to us. We experienced the largest period of land loss and distinction, sovereignty, autonomy loss during that 100 years. And today, when they talk about residential schools, they talk about the crimes committed against the children. And, and they're terrible, and they need to be addressed. And in fact, people should be held accountable. But the countries, Canada, the United States, the states, the churches, they need to be held accountable for what they did to the people, not just to the children, not the individual crimes. Yes, that, but not just the individual crimes. I mean, I heard one report that said Putin wants to hold Zelensky, you know, put him on trial for, for crimes against humanity. Are you freaking kidding me? I mean, and it also shows you what a debacle the United Nations is and, and what a joke it is. I mean, when you think about how much the superpowers get to thumb their nose at, not just, not just Russia, not just China, but the United States. The United States and three other countries absolutely voted against and opposed the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. They, they voted against it. They didn't, they didn't sit it out. They didn't, you know, suggest, well, we need to recuse ourselves from this because of our own history. No, they, they voted against it. Why? Because they don't want to change their, their behavior, their policies, their practices, their laws. In fact, President Obama, the good one, right? <laughs> President Obama. Well, we, uh, we, we, we support the aspirations of the agreement, of the declaration. Provided they don't conflict with U.S. laws. Wait, wait, wait. What did you? What was that last part? You support the aspirations of the Declaration, provided they don't conflict with your laws. Well, that's what the Declaration was for—to point out that many nation states with indigenous populations are violating their rights. Of course, your laws conflict with the U.N. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. That's why they passed the declaration, to bring countries like Canada, the United States, New Zealand, Australia, to bring them in line. Well, supposedly, <laughs> like I said, I have a big problem with the international community that, that's great at, <laughs> in the words of Reggie Johnson, putting squiggly lines on a paper, but then do nothing to, to enforce it. I mean, look, the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is, um, is weak at best, and at worst, it's a sham. It's, you know, it's checking a box. Does it really establish the standard, the international standard for, uh, for the treatment of indigenous people? No, it doesn't. If there's no enforcement, how does, it, it, how does it establish a standard, the minimum standard of that? That's what it says right in the declaration. So now is this inept, neutered UN sits back and watches Russia have its way with, with Ukraine. 
It's almost laughable to watch, to watch this thing play out. Nobody's going to stop Russia. Russia may, and, and I hope, suffer the consequences of economic sanctions and that kind of stuff. But you know what it ends up happening? It's going to be the poor people of Russia who suffer. It's not, you know, Putin's not going to suffer. And who knows? Maybe, maybe the guy is losing his mind. Maybe he is sick and figures this is his, his, his last hurrah. I, who knows? A lot of speculation. But it's funny. You always hear all these stories about these great contractors that the United States hired, you know, during all of their 20, 30 years in, in the Middle East. Blackwater. So where are these brave American mercenaries? Where are they when, when, when a place like the Ukraine needs, needs um, experienced military fighters? You bet they're not going in there. Hell no. They, they want the cushy, high-paying, you know, easy to take out, shoot from a distance kind of, kind of, uh, kind of jobs. So, I mean, again, the level of hypocrisy is incredible. And, of course, let's not leave out <laughs> um, the moron Trump. I mean, what, what did he call uh, Putin? He said he was a genius. I got a hint for you. If you're a moron, everybody seems like a genius compared to you. And so when, when Trump is, is literally saying how great Putin is and how great his strategy was and how great how much of a genius he was, and even suggesting, you know, they could use for a force like that on, on the southern border. Are you freaking kidding me? But you know what? Republicans are still going to stand right beside him. That's how screwed up the United States is. So as I sit here, listening to news pundits and politicians and consultants and experts and foreign you know, foreign ambassadors and all these people go over and over and over again with this stuff. Look, as a native person, with my perspective, it always comes back to, you know, to what the United States did. And what it continues to do. Look, when I talk about 500 years of genocide being committed against native peoples, it's still going on. We still have an ongoing battle every single day with, this, with, with states, Seneca's are battling New York State over billions of dollars today. Today. The federal government's involved. They, you know what, again, I, 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 one thing I, I cited that nobody's ever brought up before is when they do this analysis on critical race theory. And critical race theory, it literally is an analysis on the intersection of law and racism or racism in law. Well, there's no better example of the intersection of racism or, a, or race diminishment than all of the laws the United States have passed against Native people from the, from the very beginning. Every treaty was a crime. And of course, breaking those treaties was another crime. But I mean, when they, they passed a law called, I think they called it the Civilization Act, which is when they started to fund um, these, these assimilation efforts. And that Civilization Act, which, which stayed in place for a long time, became not only the authorization, but the funding mechanism for residential schools. I mean, imagine passing a law 
that funds and, you know, and again, promotes, allows, establishes schools. And I say schools, they're they're really prisons, institutions that could rip children away from their homes, many of whom would never return. Many of them would never find their families again. They would be taken from their families, you know, for, you know, for over a decade. They'd be taken away, sometimes as young as three years old. And they'd be kept in, in these schools, you know, well after their teen years. Sometimes with no way to ever, ever connect back with their families or their community or their, their nation. And that's if you survived. I mean, what's it say about a policy that establishes schools that the alumni are considered survivors. I don't know how many of you consider yourself a survivor of your high school or your grade school, and you might do it tongue-in-cheek, but you know, I don't find that funny. The reason I don't find it funny is because our kids, and when I say our kids, these are actually the peers of my, my parents and grandparents. Our kids faced the real possibility of death in these schools. Now, now why, would they, why would they be killed? Why would they be allowed to die? For one reason, their identity, their native identity. There is no question that what Russia is doing now, what China would love to do to Taiwan, what the United States would still love to do to Cuba, there's no question that what this is all about. It is still empire building. I mean, the United States has their military in, what, 70 other countries around the world? Can you imagine if, if any other country, China, Russia, had that? And I'm, again, I'm not defending any of the actions of Vladimir Putin. Uh, none of them. I, th- I think he's a scumbag. I mean, I really do. I think he's, a, he's one of the worst human beings on the planet. But that's not, a, that's not a really empty room when you stick all those worst people on the planet. There's a whole bunch you can stick in there. And some of them have good, old-fashioned American names like Donald. So, look, there are, there's a lot of room in that, in that boat to hell if, you're, uh, you know, if, you, if you believe in that kind of thing. So, I find watching some of this thing play out really interesting because of the way this is all being characterized by the media and and i haven't listened to any fox news and you know i've only seen a little bit online i haven't even sat there in front of the tube to watch some of this stuff but i've heard some but i've also heard some politicians you know so it's it's going to be i mean it's funny how even this even the aggression from from russia will somehow get politicized and factionalized and, and turned into, you know, uh, partisan disagreement in, uh, in the United States. And yeah, there'll be, there'll be people, the right will be blaming the left for what they didn't do. And the left will be blaming the right for what they did. Even as Trump continues to sound off about how great Vladimir Putin is. I mean, he's, he's going to continue to do that. And you know what? The media is going to still give him a microphone. And it's, you know, and for those, for anybody who thinks, well, they should give him a microphone so he can hang himself. Trump hasn't hung himself yet. It doesn't matter what racist or Nazi uh, propaganda he puts out there. Why? 
because he has a lot of support in the United States. And why would that be? Well, it might be because of the legacy of racism in the United States. I mean, there's, there's the, a, a complete inability to, to take an honest look. Not, yeah, look, it, it's, it's been a struggle for, for black people to get much of the truth out there. I mean, there, there's still states that want to argue that, that slavery, you know, was not the reason for the Civil War. That it was about states' rights. Yeah, states' rights to have slavery. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the history of the black experience in the United States is, is incredible. And it's slowly being, getting out there. But you know what isn't out there? Our history. I mentioned it, you know, I mentioned it last week that you've got somebody like um, Abraham Lincoln and there's a debate on whether he was a racist or not or whether he's a white supremacist or not. And if you only frame that debate based on his views, his actions, his policies as it relates to only black people and ignore the fact that he was signed, signed the largest execution order in the history of the United States against uh, 38 Dakota, caused a, uh, you know, caused a major uprising and fight over signing the, the Homestead Act, and so many other pieces of legislation that were so clearly racist when it comes to Native people. Yes, of course he was a racist. But, but don't narrow the window for that analysis as it relates to only white people and black people. I don't know how he passed that. Anybody could suggest he passed that test. Well, yeah, the Emancipation Proclamation, that thing. But take a look at the whole picture. Take a look at what, what Lincoln represented to humanity as a whole. And there's no question that, that he was a racist. He was a bigot, a white supremacist. And Sorry, but they pretty much all were. And they continue to be. Like I said, I was glad to see that Barack Obama broke that glass ceiling and became the first black, black president of the United States. And, and he had an experience as a black man in the United States, but not multi-generations of it. His father was Kenyan. He wasn't, he didn't inherit that legacy of gener, intergenerational trauma that came from slavery. No, he didn't. He always had a certain amount of privilege. And it showed itself. It showed itself, uh, you know, while he was an elected official. And it still shows itself. And, and, he, and look, I think he, he appears to have been, a, you know, a relatively good man, good husband, good father. And I don't condemn him for any of that. But to anybody on the right who suggests that, that somehow Barack Obama represented reparations for black people, come on. Come on. Kamala Harris also it does not have the intergenerational trauma of, of a black person in, uh, in, in the United States. So this almost tokenizing of skin and skin color I, I hope more and more people find it insulting. But most of this stuff misses how much 
people, and, and look, the same thing can go for Native people, how much we contribute to the colonial enterprise, how much we contribute to promoting and continuing the process of assimilation. And I, look, I, and I know it's tough. I know it's tough because if you are an American, regardless of your color or your ethnicity or your, you know, your belief system, you can find a certain amount of solace in what your goal is to achieve civil rights within the United States framework, equality. But if you're a people who have been the victims of genocide for over 500 years, lands that not only continue to be occupied illegally of, of your own, but even the small parcels that you do have, you're denied the right to make decisions on that? I mean, one of the, I've said it before, one of the main reasons the United States voted against the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, they didn't like the accepted and international definition of self-determination being applied to Native people. It sounded a little bit too much like statehood and nationhood. And the United States, and, and we've, I've had, I have a document somewhere, somewhere around here <laughs> where the, the United States um, National Security uh, Agency issued a statement about the UN Declaration. And they said they oppose Native people asserting sovereignty on their land. So is it really our land? Well, we would argue we, it is. And in fact, you know, where I live here on the Cattaraugus Territory of the Second Nation, there's a strong argument, and in fact, a strong and easy argument to be made that Seneca Territory isn't even part of the United States. Not just a part of New York State or the United States, but not just not under its jurisdiction legally, but the Senecas can make a compelling argument that their land is not, not part, and not the only ones, not just the Senecas alone, but why? Because there's language. I mean, there's language that, that we didn't write that, that, you know, George Washington's people put together in the Candidate Retreaty. It says the United States recognized the land is, there, is ours. The Seneca land is, belongs to the Senecas, and the United States will never claim the same. Of course, <laughs> we get back to the whole idea of squiggly lines on a paper and, uh, and, and whether treaties really mean anything or not. But the United States drafted those words that the United States would never claim the same, nor deprive any of us, Native people, the free use and enjoyment of our lands. We would not be inter inter interfered with. Well, that's still an ongoing battle today. Today, every, every single day. So this is part of the difficulty. So as we all listen to the radio and uh, and you know, see the news breaks and maybe dial in to Fox News or CNN or MSNBC and follow this thing through with Russia invading Ukraine. Well, look, I'm wearing my land back shirt for a reason. Because land that is illegally occupied should be returned. We should have a restoration proce process, policy. We want our land back. Ukrainians want their land back. 
Hawaiians want their land back. It's not a big lift. It's not, it's not, it's not a big ask. I, I know it's a, it is a big ask because the egos associated with not just these world leaders, but the legacy of that leadership and that imperialism and that colonialism creates an ego that is so big. And it's not just Putin who has this ego problem. Joe Biden has it. Donald Trump had it, has it. Barack Obama has it. I mean, the amount of hypocrisy that plays out in not only the actions versus the words, the condemnation versus the acceptance. I mean, when, you know, when, as we finish the last few days of Black History Month, I'm, it still never ceases to amaze me how often you'll hear white people quote Martin Luther King, take his words completely out of context to justify some of the worst behavior. I mean, and, you know, and again, the hypocrisy that we see playing out, and look, this even comes back to the, to, to the mascot issue a little bit. You'll hear people screaming about cancel culture and, and the hysteria associated with, with, you know, schools teaching critical race theory, which none of them do. And when we argue that they should remove these native mascots, oh, see, that's that cancel culture again. That's a part of our history that we, that we teach. No, you don't. You don't teach. And then when they say, well, we should teach more history. Well, what the hell kind of history are you going to teach that's going to justify, you know, having a, you know, a, a racist, race-based, stereotypical image of a native person as your mascot? What are you going to teach to justify that? I guarantee it isn't going to be the truth. You're not going to compare what native children were going through during that 100-year period of time that, that all these white schools were, were appropriating our images for after they bastardized them, changed them, did what L. Frank Baum suggested, forget these miserable, despicable beings, and speak in later ages of the glory of the grand kings of the forest and the plain that, that Cooper loved to heroism. Yeah, that was his line. See, the hypocrisy runs deep in American history. The land of the free with slaves? All men are created equal, created equal with slaves and with genocide? Well, I, you, you have to get into this, this debate about what is a man. Kill the Indian, save the man is what they said uh, about our children. We're going to kill as if our native identity prevented us from, from being a part of, the, uh, of, of humankind. So you kill that part of a person. You kill it. And then you can say what remains is, yeah, kind of a man. We're not going to consider them equal to us. But if we kill enough of that identity and then indoctrinated us into their faith, their Christian faith, and their patriotism. What do you see anytime somebody wants to say something positive about a native person? You'll see code talkers. You'll see Deb Hallen. You'll see Jim Thorpe. You'll see the Im these images that are never the, the full story, 
But you're going to see Jim Thorpe as a U.S. Olympian. One of the greatest American athletes. You don't see him as the victim of, of a residential school. Carlisle Indian School, one of the worst ones. That's not the story they tell about Jim Thorpe. You don't tell the, the complete story of, of Deb Haaland. Just her, the role that she played in the Democratic Party. You know, being a, you know, you know, a part of that system. You don't tell the story, the true story, of some of those code talkers. How they got to be code talkers. Why they were, for, how they were forced into it. Or some of them, I mean, the, the one that, that people always want to put out there is uh, Peter McDonald, I think is his name. The guy who went to prison for embezzling money from his nation, from the Navajo Nation. But no, we're going to prop him up as a hero, American hero. As if propping up Native people to tell the greater American story is a way to erase. I mean, that's what it is. It's a way to erase the sin. You know, you know I've heard people call slavery America's original sin. No. It's part of it. But there was genocide. And that slavery didn't start in 1619. Started started way before that. Started the first, you know, almost from the beginning when when Columbus landed in the, in the uh, in the, in those islands that he thought were the Indies, the Isles of the Indies. Slavery began almost immediately. In fact, he sized them up. Said with with 50 men we could make them all slaves and make them do whatever we want. They were docile. They didn't really know about weapons. They didn't have experience in, in, in um, engaging in war. Why? Because they were peaceful people. Well, what, a terrible, what a terrible thing to be a peaceful people, especially in a world that was rapidly becoming anything but a peaceful world. Columbus was just part of it. Imperialism, that what people want to tout as this, this age of discovery, it wasn't about discovery. It was about imperialism. It was about taking from others. That's what we're seeing today. That's what we're seeing play out in, in Ukraine. We're seeing a, a, a country... And, and who knows where this will really end? I mean, I heard somebody say the, you know, the, the end of the story begins today. Well, you know, no, the end of the story, we, we can't even, even imagine at this point. We don't know how. I mean, we, we, Americans would love to believe that if the, if, if the United States ever experienced an invasion by an occupying power, that every American would grab his gun and defend, and defend his life. I don't know. I, I don't know that every U Ukrainian will. It's, it's really easy to talk about giving your life for your country. Most people can't even give, you know, give much of their time to their country. They're, you know, they, people complain about everything. They don't look at community. They don't look at family. Most people are so self-centered. And look, I couldn't condemn a Ukrainian or an American that says, no, I'm not, I don't want anything to do with this fight. I'm just packing up my family, grabbing as much of my stuff as I can, and I'm, and I'm 
going to go someplace safe. It's interesting because if you look at what the United States experienced in some of their, their, their aggression in the Middle East, you saw people really committed, right or wrong. I mean, yeah, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not praising the Taliban or, you know, or, or anybody who the United States was engaged in conflict with over the last 30 years. I'm not, I'm, I'm really not praising them. But you saw people who really did represent an insurgency. I mean, Russia got turned back from Afghanistan. The United States got turned back from Afghanistan. Will Russia get turned back from Ukraine? I don't know. We'll see. And will the Ukrainian people fight? I mean, I'm, I'm sure some will. But remember that great army that the United States trained in, uh, in Afghanistan to, that was going to stand up to the Taliban? Yeah, it took it about a day. About a day. And then the United States sat back and said, well, we think that if the, the Russians attack the Ukraine, they could, they could take the entire country within a week. It's funny, you didn't say that about, the, about you know, the military that you trained in Afghanistan. I don't know. I, look, of course I'm going to have a bit of a jaded view on what comes out of the United States. Why? Because of our experience, of the experience of Native people. The international community, still to this day, will receive delegations from, uh, from the Hawaiian Kingdom. They, they will still receive them. I, my, my friend Leon Tzu and, um, uh, you know, and, and others, uh, Kiono uh, uh, Sai. I mean, these guys have traveled the world. And people hear their story. And they know they're right. They know that the United States, in fact, one of the craziest things in American history is the quote-unquote annexation of Hawaii was done through an illegal process, a process that isn't created for such an action. And the process was a joint resolution of Congress. See, the way land is supposed to be annexed, it's supposed to be a treaty is negotiated from a, from a, from a participant that wants to be annexed, a country asking to become a part of another country, in this case, the United States. And that treaty is, um, is approved by two-thirds of Congress, or I'm sorry, two-thirds of the Senate, and then signed into law by the president. Well, that's not what happened with Hawaii. These joint resolutions of Congress, these are the, this mechanism, this, this process for doing things like naming a holiday. It is not the same process that is involved in creating law. That's why they're called resolutions, not laws. They, you know, they have these, you know, almost a, a tokenized um, uh, version or, or, you know, or effect, I guess. So a joint resolution of Congress was used to literally take another country. In 1993, around the 100th anniversary of that taking, there was another joint resolution of Congress apologizing for what took place 100 years earlier. Bill Clinton signed that one in the law. It's called the Apology Resolution. Another joint resolution of Congress. And if you don't believe that the Supreme Court is a, is a corrupt enterprise <laughs> in of itself, 
the Supreme Court ruled when there was an attempt to use that joint resolution of Congress from 1993 over some land use and land, uh, you know, land claims issues. The Supreme Court says, wait a second now, the joint resolution of Congress has no, no force of law. Really? A joint resolution has no force of law. Then how did the United States claim Hawaii through a joint resolution of Congress? How did they turn it into a state in 1959? How did they do these things if the very process that was used has no force of law? See, it's when it's convenient. It had force of law when they, when they took the place. But it, the apology and the acknowledgement and the admission of the crime that the United States committed in doing so has no force of law. It could not be used in a legal proceeding as an admission of anything. That's the United States for you. Talks about two sides of the face. It's where the whole forked tongue thing comes from. It wasn't just that treaties were broken. The manipulation of language is always done with intentional ambiguity. You know what? There was a, the Supreme Court actually ruled when it came to ambiguity in, uh, in treaties with Native peoples that any interpretation of a treaty that had ambiguous language had to be interpreted in a way that favored, that took the native interpretation. And, and supposedly, this was about condemning the wordsmithing that would go into, uh, into treaty making. So the Supreme Court literally ruled that any ambiguity in the treaty had to, had to be ruled in favor of, uh, of, of the native view, the native perspective of, of that language, of, of that treaty. It never happens, but that's what the Supreme Court ruled. In fact, the Seneca Nation, not in a court of law, but in an in, in a, uh, arbitration hearing that is supposed to be based on rules of U.S. law, literally added language to the, the Seneca Nation's gaming compact with New York State, trying to force them to make payments to New York State based on a compact that had no language that suggested they needed to do that. Look, they had a compact that said they would pay the New York State for 14 years. And then there would be an automatic renewal. But in that language associated with the automatic renewal, there was no language about paying the state. There was no terms added to it. There was no, well, you'll pay this much, you'll pay this percentage for years two, three, four, five, six, seven. No, none of that was there. But two white guys who didn't, I mean, look, this isn't about ambiguity. This is about putting language in a, in, a, in a contract or in a compact that doesn't exist. I'm adding language that wasn't there in the first place. The third arbitration uh, judge, who happened to be Kevin Washburn, a native guy from, uh, who actually served in the Interior Department, he said those two guys just, just rewrote the compact. That's not what judges are supposed to do, even arbitration judges. In fact, Ambiguity should be interpreted in our favor. That, um, that's what the courts have held. And there's a reason for that. And it has to do with the, with, again, not about sophistication or unsophistication. It's not necessarily about that. It's about 
a history of using language in legal proceedings and the unfair advantage, the disadvantage that Native people have when entering into those agreements. So when we are able to add language that protects us, there should be no point where the ambiguity that the, that the states or the United States adds to language should be able to undo that. That's, that's the ruling. Unfortunately, like everything else, it, it's not necessarily upheld. So, look, I, I, I do want to come back to what I opened the show with, this invasion of Ukraine. And, and shame on every or any American who is, who is going to try to side with Russia on this thing. And I'm not just talking about Trump or the Republican Party or Fox News. I'm really talking about anybody who cannot see what aggression means and what it looks like. Because as a Native person who is at, in a constant battle with New York State and the United States and other states on, and, and Canada over policies that are still trying to make us conform to their laws, their customs, their ways. We're in a constant battle over whether the United States and Canada have jurisdiction, have sovereign authority over our territories. There's never a place where that transfer of that sovereignty ever occurred. You can ask, you can foil a request, but you will never find any language in any treaty that really constitutes a transfer of our sovereignty to the United States or to Canada. It's a myth. But you know what? Our people get sucked into these myths. We get sucked into believing that, and it's just the way it goes. Yeah, they, they did something illegal. Yeah, we, we think it was illegal too. But there's not a whole lot we can do about it. And, I, and, and, and that's I find frustrating. Because at some point, we don't just throw up our hands. And we don't just give in. We do more than that. We become complicit in it. And we hear other Native voices that'll shoot us down for standing up. As an activist, and I don't even necessarily like the word, but as, as a Native person who is willing to fight for our identity, our lands, our people, our, kill, our kids, our children, you know, our legacy, I know that I personally have experienced being called out by, by other Native people. And our women get hit with that all the time. Our non, you know, our, our non-binary uh, folks get called, uh, you know, called out on that all the time. We get marginalized, yes, by the states, by the United States, but we also, we also get marginalized and called, uh, called down by some of our own people. So when you hear a few voices coming out of, uh, out of Ukraine that somehow you know, are, uh, you know, are drawn 
to Russia occupying their lands. Don't give the don't give those voices the equal value. Look, you know, I I fully support resistance from Ukrainians, but I get it. You know, we're we're all trying to survive, and it's not easy because what we're trying to survive against is a pretty strong and powerful force. This force of imperialism, this this force of subjugation. Look, are Ukrainians going to be enslaved? No. The United States had no problem doing that. Will the Ukrainians be slaughtered in mass? I hope not, but the United States had no problem doing that. I mean, Thomas Jefferson referred to Native people in the Declaration of Independence, one of the, one of the first founding, doc, you know, you know, founding doc, documents of the United States, called as merciless Indian savages, whose whose manner of warfare was an undistinguished destruction of all sexes, ages, and conditions. Thomas Jefferson claimed that we were the savages. After we had already experienced several hundred years of massacres of our women and children, scalp bounties being taken, and we're still being called terrorists. When, when Native people blocked trains in Canada, they actually added laws to their books that would allow them to be more aggressive towards those people. But they didn't treat a bunch of white truckers the same way. It took a long time for them to, to, to apply any force to those truckers. There was a complete double standard, and they had a specific law in the books for it. Well, that's my initial uh, take on on what's happening with Ukraine and the hypocrisy of those who are commenting on it. I just had to I just had to offer my opinion. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank Reggie for for queuing me up and uh, and running the board. This is John Kane for John Kane and Regan Delogan and Resistance Radio. Yahweh.